Hey everybody, this is episode 24 of Artist Soapbox. Hello and welcome to Artist Soapbox, a podcast featuring artists from the Triangle region of North Carolina talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am Tamara Kassane. In this episode, I'm speaking with Lormerev Jones, actor, choreographer, and teaching artist about the artist hustle, MFAs, and self-care for artists. Lormerev Jones is a former Raleigh resident having grown her resume on triangle stages. She received her BA in theater from Meredith College and her MFA in theater from Sarah Lawrence College. As an actor, Lormerev has performed with several area companies including Man Bites Dog Theater, Raleigh Ensemble Players, Theater Raleigh, and Cape Fear Regional Theater. As a choreographer, her movement has been featured at Raleigh Charter High School, Research Triangle High School, and Deep Dish Theater. She's also worked as a stage manager and a designer of props, costumes, and sound. She has taught young people of all ages as a teacher at Arts Together in Raleigh, as well as various classes and devised theater workshops for area high schools. She currently resides in Cincinnati, where she freelances in all her areas of expertise. Hi, Lermerov. Good morning. How are you doing, Tamara? I'm great. Thanks for being here. So you live in Cincinnati. I do. But you are working in Raleigh this week, at least, which Mm -hmm. is why I'm able to interview you live. What are you working on here? I am working on two high school musicals, and now very recently, as of last night, in fact, uh, a a musical at a professional company. Um, So usually every January, February, I spend, have spent here uh, choreographing for a couple of high schools, a couple of charter high schools in Raleigh and Durham. So I am currently choreographing cabaret for one of those high schools, The Little Mermaid Junior for the other high school. (laughs) And um, I'm now going to be working on Assassins at Theater in the Park. So pretty full plate. When did you move to Cincinnati? I moved to Cincinnati in May of 2016. Up until that point, I had, you know, I'd returned home from grad school and I had been serving as the director of standardized patients at the new med school at Campbell University. So I had a day job and was doing theater in the evenings. And uh, my partner lives in Cincinnati, and we had been long distancing basically for our entire relationship. And it had been almost two years, and we decided that we really wanted to close the gap. And he had children, and I said, I'm willing to live in Cincinnati for two years. Mm -hmm. Um, His youngest son will graduate from high school this June. I said, I'm living living in Cincinnati for two years, but I don't think I'm willing to live in Cincinnati for more than two years. But Mm -hmm. I'll move there, and, you know, there's good theater, and... I did an acting internship at one of the professional theaters there, so I already at least had a few contacts that I could tap into for for theatrical work. Now, you do go back and forth from Mm -hmm. Cincinnati to Raleigh. What is that like, having mobile work life? I have come to love it. Uh, The older I get, the the more difficult the long-distance driving becomes, the solo long-distance driving, I should say. But otherwise, it adds variety to my life, which is really nice. Uh, You know, I had this full-time job for a while, which was great. I really enjoyed that job a lot. But I knew what I was doing every day, and it was going to be the same time frame, and I was going to have an hour commute each way. I kind of knew what my day looked like. And the wonderful thing about going to different places is for one thing, different climates, but also just, you know, it's great to get a new perspective, a new outlook and always working with kids. You're going to get that. Mm -hmm. And in these two cases, these two high schools, they are high schools that I've been working at for at least four to five years. Mm -hmm. So I've watched students progress from freshmen to seniors. I've watched their confidence in their movement ability progress Mm -hmm. from freshman to senior year. So it's really, I mean, in, you know, it's coming home in the literal sense, but it's also coming home in an artistic sense. This is where I, you know, we sort of shaved away at La Merve to figure out what kind of artist she was going to be. And, oh, she's also a choreographer. Oh, that's Mm -hmm. a new thing. I mean, that I started doing that at Raleigh Charter High School. Raleigh Charter High School is the first place to hire me as a choreographer in 2009, I believe. And so we're almost going on, you know, a nine, 10 year relationship. Mm -hmm. What do you work on when you are working with high school students on choreography? What what are you focusing on in addition to just learning the steps? I am showing them that what they perceive as dance is one option of what dance is, but it is not the whole story. 
I did not come to dance early. You know, there are, you know, you meet dancers who have been dancing for their whole life. They've been dancing, you know, since they were three, they were putting those ballet shoes and, you know, and they've done it ever since. And that's a, that's one, that's one path to dance. I didn't start dancing till I was 14 and I did not take dance, you know, at a traditional private studio. I took dance at church. Mm -hmm. My church was super liberal here in Raleigh and they had a performing arts program. So I took ballet, jazz, um, modern. There was a mime class at this church. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So, and we did productions, but not the type of typical church productions that you would assume. Which, like we did do, a, you know, one at Easter and one at Christmas, but it wasn't like, let's recreate the nativity. It mm-hmm. was, you know, let's have this mime piece that's about, you know, how the church is getting away from itself. And like, let's have this modern dance piece that's very abstract about, you know, about the birth of Christ. So, I had a very different dance introduction to dance, traditional dance training than anyone else. But what I'm trying to impart to these kids is that they walk to school every day. They make choices about movement every day. And no, it's not a tour jeté or a, you know, or a PK turn, but you're making movement choices. Mm -hmm. And those movement choices can translate to performance in musical theater. Whenever I meet new young people that have never worked with me before, because I can come off as a little bit intimidating. I always say, I'm only going to ask a few things of you. I'm going to ask that you don't say I can't do that. It's very possible that you could be correct, but I don't want to hear it until you've attempted. And you walked here. So you're already a dancer. You walked in here. You you are, you are have more, you are capable of more than what you think you're capable of. Mm-hmm. Which I think is really important for young people to hear. Because um, they don't really hear that anymore. At least not in my experience. So... Mm-hmm. Those are the things that I request of them um, and that they ask questions and that they listen to other people's questions because that's how you learn. So that's sort of my uh, teaching choreography in schools uh, pedagogy. Mm -hmm. And it's been pretty effective. It just seems like such a frivolous thing. You know, that's what I spent my Martin Luther King Day doing. We had a four hour rehearsal and I was teaching, you know, I taught the opening number to Cabaret, which is welcome in. And I taught them most of money. And these are kids that are giving up a day that they have off. You know, Mm. they're rehearsing from 10 to 2 on their three-day weekend, which indicates to me that they really want to be there, that they really want to learn. And and that's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to remind them that this is supposed to be fun. It's called a play for Mm -hmm. a reason, Um, but that there are skills that they can take into any field. I mean, choreography is really just problem solving. Mm -hmm. I got all these people in a room. I want them all to look as though they are in sync and rehearsed and polished but they have different skill sets and they have different ways of learning and I need to make them a cohesive unit. Mm-hmm. How can I do that? What are the tools that I can use to do that? And that's whatever job you're going to get, you're probably going to be problem solving to some degree. And I think it's good to for students of theater to know that early on. When we were having lunch a couple of months ago. Yes, at, in September. Yes, yeah. in September. At, you also mentioned that you talk with young people about how to care for themselves as mm-hmm. artists. I think you told me a story about how you always push apple eating on mm-hmm. <laughs> the young people for yeah. uh, for their vocal health. Was yes, that what it was that for? Yes, that is, exactly. Why is that important to you to impart to the young folks? Uh, from personal experience, I I went to grad school and I burned myself out and for a while associated it specifically with art making and just thought, I can't do this anymore. I may never do this again. Like mm-hmm. if this is what it's going to require of me, I don't know that I'm capable. There's a lot of cliches in what I'm about to say. You only get one body, but you really do only mm-hmm. get one body. And you know, it's you can recover from that, but it's so much better if you just devote time and space and mental capacity to saying, I am going to do these things for myself so that I can make the best work that I can make. And these kids, I mean, even when I was in high school, I was not so focused on what am I going to major in in college? Where am I going to go to college? All of these extracurricular activities that I'm juggling in addition to this play I'm doing, I was like, I don't understand how they manage. Mm. And so I'm just, again, trying to give them tools now that they can that they can take and, you know, they can take pick and choose what they want, Mm -hmm. what works for them and what doesn't. And so I just try to impart everything that I've learned about how to take care of your body, but especially because I, you know, I specialize in musicals and how to keep your instrument safe. I was in my mid-20s when I learned 
halls, you know, cough drops or any kind of cough drop, they just numb your throat. They don't really get rid of the problem or, you know, they get rid of the cough temporarily, but they just numb your throat so that you're, you know, so that you're not coughing. So if you sing while you, you know, right after taking a cough drop, like you could be doing damage that you don't even feel yet. I didn't know that until I was in my mid twenties. And why, and if I didn't know it, like, why would any of these kids know it? Right. And so just simple things like that, that Give them an awareness, which is like what I am de- devoting my life to. It's just awareness about everything, about everything that you can be aware about. It's just saying, you know, yes, drinking water is very good, but you know what else is good for your voice? Especially if you have, you know, you know, the bladder of an infant like I do <laughs> is is eat an apple. Apples provide moisture. Um, they're a carb, which means that you're also going to be energized. Um, apples are also a good option. Are they my favorite thing to eat? No. But if you find an apple that you like, any of those apples are really good for moisture, for carbs, for antioxidants. All of that's good. And Mm -hmm. that's going to help your body. Mm -hmm. And so if I can get five kids that, you know, eat an apple a half an hour before the show, like they're just going to be better off. Just simple, basic, digestible (laughs) pun, Mm -hmm. things like that, that they can take with them into whatever life they choose. Like this is a way that I can take care of myself. Mm -hmm. I think it's just so important because these kids are just like, they're on a race to the finish line and I really don't know how they do it. You mentioned when you were going through your MFA program, Mm -hmm. you felt burned out. Mm -hmm. Why did you decide to get an MFA? Can you tell us the story of, of all of that? Sure. So I was here, I was in Raleigh, I was working um, as an actor. I I had had a a major death in the family. In fact, next month is the ten year anniversary of that death, mm-hmm. and it really knocked me on my behind in all the ways: mentally, emotionally, physically, financially. I was living with this with this family member, and. I was really still in like just coming. I mean, this is 2011 and I was still just coming out from the dark. Mm -hmm. And so I was doing theater, which I never stopped doing and trying to find work, kind of piecemealing, kind of, you know, not calling it freelancing because, you know, I wasn't that hip yet. But, you know, piecemealing, short term gigs, doing standardized patient work and had finally worked up the strength and the courage to try to maybe be a professional actor again. I went to UPTAs, which is United Professional Theater Auditions. They happen in a different city every year, and they're always in the first weekend of February, I believe. I went to UPTAs, and in fact, some lovely Good Samaritan people like paid my way. Mm-hmm. I couldn't afford, I think I could afford to pay the fee to enter, but then it was in Memphis, and I realized that that drive was probably too far for me, even as someone in my early 20s. And these two friends that, you know, I had worked with their kids a couple times and just knew them through theater paid for me to have a plane ticket, a round trip plane ticket to Memphis. I always, um, Mike McGee and Maggie McGee, I'll never, like I always say, like, you know, the reason that I'm doing so well is because you took this chance on me. From the UPTA auditions, I was offered the acting internship that I mentioned earlier um, at a theater in Cincinnati. And uh, I moved to Cincinnati for the first time um, in fall of 2011. That internship is really what set me on the MFA path. And I had no idea because I was one of those people (laughs) coming from an African-American middle class family that I got that degree. I got that bachelor's and I was like, I'm done. Mm. Like, not only did I go to school, I did well in school. I graduated cum laude. Like I did, I did my, my due diligence and now I'm done. I really don't have any desire to ever go to school again. And I got into this internship, which was a wonderful internship in that it gave me full access to actual professional regional actors who were totally willing to give me the good, the bad, the ugly, and the worse Mm -hmm. about what it's like to be a regional actor, which is a form of freelancing, um, Mm -hmm. if you're doing it right. First of all, I noticed I wasn't meeting many Black women. I think I met two Mm -hmm. over the whole course of that internship. Um, I wasn't meeting many black people at all, really, but really like maybe two or three black women. And I started to think about it made me really appreciate the community I had here, because the moment that I started auditioning in Raleigh after I graduated from Meredith, 
I never stopped. Mm -hmm. And then when I did stop, it was because people just started calling me. Mm -hmm. And I don't say that to brag. I just say it because that's how it happened. I auditioned for REP, got into REP, um, led by artistic director Glenn Matthews. And then I never stopped working. And then someone from Durham came to see an REP show. And then I was asked to be in stuff in Durham. And then that's how I infiltrated the Durham community, which is its own its own sphere. And and then I met Jeff Storr. It really made me appreciate the fact that here there are so many directors and artists who have imagination, because I'm just going to be very frank and say that that is not the case in most major, big regional theaters, Lord theaters. When you say have imagination, what does that mean? Have imagination where necess- where 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 white is not necessarily the default, where they don't read a script and automatically assume that everyone in this should be white. Now, if there's something in the script that dictates that, that's a different thing. And sometimes there is something that maybe might dictate that, um, but it's not necessary. Like, you know, at R.E.P., I did, I was Barbara Allen in Dark of the Moon, who is described as having... I don't know if it's blonde hair, but it's like hair that a black person usually wouldn't have and like copper eyes. And I remember that that was like, it wasn't a big controversy. People were like, oh, like that's a very bold choice. And it's like, why is that a bold choice? She's a woman that sings. I'm a woman that sings. Mm -hmm. No, I don't have copper eyes. I don't think people are going to really be upset that I don't have copper eyes for this play. If they are, we're really doing a terrible job of telling the story. (laughs) And so it's imagination in even just choosing the material that you choose and knowing whether or not that material can be played by people who are diverse or mm-hmm. if it really is a white person's story. Now, there's anything wrong with that. I've seen a lot of white people's stories in my life. But imagination about choice of material, about casting, um, about stuff like that. And regional theater is just not where that's at. I think that there are some smaller regional theaters that are taking more risks and, you know, that aren't just like, hey, let's let's program Raisin in the Sun in February or The Wiz in February, which is what a lot of like, that's how regional theaters like get their black audiences is they're like, we'll just give you a show mm-hmm. and where there's no way that any white person could be in it. And then we've checked that box and like, give us the grant, please, which is a lot of what I see. Mm-hmm. So the internship really made me realize how much vision Glenn Matthews, Jeff Storer, those people had and that. I was going to have to claw a lot harder in, yes, a bigger market, but also in a market where a lot of the plays are are centered around white people. Mm-hmm. And so I just realized how much my career was in the hands of other people and that that was not going to work for my personality. I couldn't... Um, you know, I can meet people, I can network, but I knew that I needed more something, mm. uh, that I needed something else away. And also, like, I just needed to make my own work. Like, that was not really something that was on my radar until I did that acting internship. I just thought, no one is this. No one is choosing plays that you would be good for, or if they are choosing plays that you would be good for, they are not considering you. Mm-hmm. I remember an understudy audition because that was another wonderful thing about this internship, which really was great. It was a positive force in my life. But I remember an understudy audition that I killed. I killed it. And I was overhearing the director talking to some of the other people and him saying, you know, she was great and natural and blah, 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 accolades. But no one will ever believe her as such and such a sister because she's Black. And hearing that, I was like, yeah, yeah, okay. So we're gonna, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to start doing our own stuff, whatever that means. I didn't know what it meant. I just thought, yeah, okay, that's, that, that, that line of thinking is what dominates the the regional theater landscape. Hmm. So and so won't be believed. So and so will stand out like a sore thumb. And I just went incorrect. Hmm. And okay, fine. So, and my 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 main my main issue with MFAs in general is that for the for the most part is they are centered on one thing. You go and study directing for three years. Hmm. You go and study acting for three years, and that's all you do for three years. And 
even when I was not conscious of the type of theater artist I was, I knew I didn't just want to act for three years. You know, I had been choreographing, you know, my, I minored in dance at Meredith College. So I had been choreographing and like at least, you know, experimenting with that part of myself since I was in college. And and I'd written stuff. I'd written really bad 10-minute plays, but I'd written plays. Mm-hmm. And I did not want to be, even in an artistic setting, where I could only do one thing for two or three years. That was not going to work for me. And so someone brought it to my attention that there was this program at Sarah Lawrence College that was multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, where it wasn't an MFA in acting or an MFA in directing. It was an MFA in theater and that you could design your own curriculum, basically. And I went, yeah, that's a thing. Mm-hmm. And um, and also could choose, like in designing your own curriculum, could choose dance classes to add to your um, to your degree and music classes mm-hmm. that could be used to enhance your degree. And I went, that's a thing. Mm-hmm. And then I found out they had a solo performance program. And I was like, this is what I was talking to Tamara and Cheryl about five <laughs> years ago anyway. This is a sign. So I applied and I applied to that school only because I said, if this is supposed to have, this is the only place I want to be. I don't want to be at a, in a traditional grad program. This is the place I want to be. So I'm going to apply here. And, you know, applying also applying to grad schools is not cheap. Like that's another whole that's another whole conversation yeah, we could have. But I mean, I think it was 60 bucks. So like doing that four or five times, forget about it. Mm-hmm. So I applied. And I went to what they call an audition weekend, but it's really not an audition. I didn't have to prepare anything. And that's the other thing that I've always hated about these other programs is bringing in a monologue and these people have never met you before and this is how they're going to meet you. Right. Um, It's really just the worst thing we've got to figure out, like what we can do, how we can assess people's talent and their ability without having them do a monologue. Yeah. So I didn't have to bring a monologue. All I had to do was bring myself. They, there was a group of us. They split us up into groups. They sent us to one of the theater spaces and the theaters at Sarah Lawrence are just gorgeous. So I'm just drooling over the architecture. (laughs) And um, it was me and um, this gentleman and this other girl. We, it was three of us in a group. I think the other groups were bigger, but we ended up being the odd group. And they gave us, and this is an activity I still use to this day. They gave us a piece, like a, a printed out picture of a piece of art. They gave us a piece of music. And they gave us text. The text was Will Eno. And so now I'm also in love because I've, <laughs> I've done a Will Eno yeah. play with with Jeff Stora by this point. So I'm like, I know this playwright. I love this text. And they say, use whatever you want. Use whatever you don't use, whatever you don't want. Make a piece two to three minutes using any of these, using any of these elements or none of these elements. And that was the audition. And then, you know, a 20 minute interview afterwards. And so I was accepted and I went and it was everything that I expected and more. And it really empowered me to, for for exactly the reason I went, which was to take control of my career mm-hmm. in a way that I did not feel I was going to be able to prior to going. Uh, I incurred a lot of debt going to that school because it's in Westchester County, which is one of the richest counties in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was living, you know, on the poor people side. I was living in Yonkers, New York, but it was still really expensive to live there. But it is, for me, it is a necessary debt that I had to take on so that I didn't spend my life standing in front of regional theater directors, which I still do from time to time, but like not depending on them for my livelihood or depending on them to be a part of an artistic venture. Mm-hmm. So I very often have, you know, former students, former former students that I've choreographed for or just met um, come up to me to talk to me about grad programs and theater. And I I always say, you know... This is not something that's for everybody. Um, and if you are not independently wealthy, it's going to cost you. Um, why are you know, why are you going? What are you looking for from the program? Uh, what you know, what do you hope to accomplish? Do you want to teach mm-hmm. in in at the college level? Because there are some schools that will let you, you know, teacher assistant TA 
Sarah Lawrence's program was not one of those. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things, you know, that in hindsight, I walked away from Sarah Lawrence without was college teaching experience, which now makes it really difficult, even though I have a terminal degree in my field Mm -hmm. to get college teaching jobs, which is kind of what I'm looking at now. So I always ask those students why it is they're going. Are you going because being in the real world is really hard right now? Right. Which is a legitimate reason, but is not the only reason. It shouldn't be a primary reason to go. Yeah, it was it was one of the best decisions I ever made. And, you know, a lot of people say go to grad school to get the contacts, to, to make the network. And which I think means a particular thing to some people. And for me, what I learned about myself in grad school is how important it is to have a collective, an artistic collective, to find your people, mm. the people that you work well with, the people that have um, the people that have similar artistic aesthetics, but then also the people that don't, that are in direct opposition to the way that you work that you can collaborate with. Mm. Um, my thesis was um, was a play that. I kind of started, again, working with you and Tamara on several years prior to going to grad school. Um, It ended up being a show called The Virgin Cookbook. And I, at at this point, this was my, me going into my second year. I knew what kind of, I even had at that point a sense of how I tell stories. I'm a very linear person. Mm. I'm a tourist, so I like things in order. Mm. Um, And so I purposely chose someone that I had worked with in the first year who is very nonlinear, who is unlike, so I'm movement-based a lot. She's very uh, design-based. So I chose someone that was in direct opposition to my strengths because I knew that it would enhance the work. And it's great to find people that like the same things you like and tell stories the way that you do and, you know, have a similar line of thinking about about how you work. But it's even more critical to find the people um, like Shana Stripe, that will that will bump up against the way that you thought that this story was going to be told, mm-hmm. and and will strengthen it and elevate it to another level because it's now it's you know it's a real collaborative living thing. I could not have made the show that I made without Shana. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about mm-hmm. the Virgin Cookbook, which was your MFA thesis. Mm-hmm. Clearly, was an important piece to you, not only because of the grad school element, Mm -hmm. but because as a solar performance piece, some of your own story was portrayed Mm -hmm. in that. Yes, ma'am. And when we were talking about it, you said that after the completion of that piece, you thought you'd never make work again. Mm -hmm. What happened during the development of that piece to Mm -hmm. take you there? And how are you feeling now? Sure. I physically and emotionally and mentally was burnt out after that show. Thank the Lord that the way the schedule worked out is I did that show for two nights, a Friday and a Saturday. My mom came up to flew up to see it because she was a character in it. And and then we had two days of school because it was the weekend before thanks. It was the Monday, Tuesday before Thanksgiving. And then I got to come home and decompress and like begin to process. And that processing So that would have been November of 2013. That processing took at least a year and a half. Hmm. Um, Now, granted, with hindsight, I realized that for my first artistic, like major artistic solo venture, I made a play about the worst day of my life, Mm -hmm. which is the day that I found my grandfather dead in our house. And it took me a long time to even realize, oh, that's one of the reasons you were so exhausted is you were reliving the worst day of your life over and over Mm -hmm. for three weeks. And then you performed it for people. And then, so a lot of that, a lot of the unpacking I had to do was just, yeah, maybe just don't make a play about the worst day or the second worst day of your life. So let's start there. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least not for a while. It and was again, pretty close on the heels of that. I mean, not that yeah, much time had it, passed. Not that much. I mean, a, but in a way, a lot had. I mean, it was five years. Oh, wow. Um, but, you know, that's the thing is grief is not grief is not linear. And I right. think that's what the play is about is, is one of the things it's about is that grief is not linear. And. I was still feeling that as though it was a month ago and now I'm feeling it and I'm writing about it and I am physicalizing 
not to get too into it, but like dragging his body sure. from a chair to a floor yeah. and, you know, and living in that moment. And, and, you know, and then someone's going, pause, do it again yeah. and do this. Uh, okay. Um, it's, I mean, it's, you know, now that I'm saying it out loud, it's very much like a black mirror episode where it's just like, there's this, uh, break from reality. And then there's like this heightened reality because you keep going out of it and then going back into it and then going out of it. And so it just took time for me to realize you like really just went balls to the wall on this first play that was about the death of your grandfather, but was also about taking ownership of your body and not letting other people have opinions about what you should do with it. Because it was a play about me. It was a play about being a 30-year-old virgin and all of the obnoxious things that people that I love and respected, including my mother, would say to me about my lady parts. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you've got these two like really high stakes things. I'm talking about bodily autonomy and losing a grandparent that was really just like a parent in this really massive way and just living in that for you know, I did a preview of it here at Common Ground in June. So like living with it from basically June to November of that year. And, you know, and having fun, like I did have fun in the process. And that was another thing that it was important for me to remember is I had fun in the process and we made it to the end. And the reason why is because I was not alone. Mm. Um, I was listening to, you know, your episode this morning about, you know, finally being grateful to be in the room with other people and like, you know, not feeling the burden of like, I had to pull this by myself. And the great thing about um, the Sarah Lawrence program is I had support. So I, you know, I had a director, but I also got to hire a, a sound designer, which I had done my sound design, you know, for the preview. Mm -hmm. um, I got to have a dramaturg. And so I had all these people, but I had support. I had a system. Um, I remember... I'm just a big fan of the podcast. So like, I just, I'm just going to talk about all the stuff that I've been listening to. Cause I don't listen. I don't listen to your podcast in the car anymore. Mm -hmm. I listen in a room where I can take notes. So like even listening to Nicola talk about, you know, I'm a solo performer, but I have all these people that help me make the work that help me discover the work. And that was a really critical lesson to learn is, you know, is that I personally do not do well sitting at a computer tippity tip typing because and I think part of it is because that is not a physical action mm. and I do best when I am up walking around working I mean you can I could tell you that for the development sessions for the cookbook which you know ended up being a cooking show the director said why don't we just you know why don't we just go to your house and like mm. I'll sit behind the counter and you just cook and then tell me stories. Mm. I feel like that's what this play is going to be anyway. Mm -hmm. And so I went, you know, so we would have, you know, I'd say come over for breakfast, for Brenner, for, for breakfast, for dinner. <laughs> and I would make waffles and like, but like that was the thing was the motion is what brought the the character and the material and like brought the story into focus. Not for me, sitting at a computer was not going to do it because that's never a place that I've lived. I've, mm. I'm an actor first. And so I've always lived like in the discovery of things, like in the blocking rehearsals. Like that's where, that's where I get my mojo. And mm -hmm. so she had this idea, like, let's just do the thing in the kitchen instead of like waiting for you to come up with a new draft. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's what I've really been on the hunt for ever since is a group of people or one or two people even that I can turn to and be like, you know, you're thinking about this is very different from my thinking about this. So what do you think about how to tell this story? Cause I'm stuck. Mm -hmm. uh, but you, again, the awareness of that came from two years of collaborative work. That's one of my favorite things about working with other people is they shine a light on my blind spots. It's yeah. It's an awareness of, of knowing, you know, where you shine and then knowing other people that shine in other places. Mm -hmm. And, and letting them shine. Letting them do it. And like letting them bring their awareness and their skill set, which is different from yours, to the work. What is this musical that you're working on? Is it a solo, another <laughs> solo piece? It is not. Because another thing I learned from Virgin Cookbook is like solo performance is wonderful. I definitely want to make another solo performance at some point. But... I need a lot of time and space for that. Again, like, you know, just knowing what your limits are. So 
I thought that this, this actually, the, the impetus for this piece came from a personal place, came from a, th- I thought it might be a solo place. Um, because I spent most of 2017 unemployed. Mm-hmm. Um, I got very, very discouraged by, uh, arts education on the regional level and had taken a job that I thought was going to be one thing and ended up being a very different thing and learned a lesson that I think you don't learn until you're in it, which is just because someone offers you a job doesn't mean you should take the job. Mm. And so I spent most of last year unemployed, which was a very enlightening experience and was different because the first time that I spent, you know, an extended period of time unemployed, it was because my grandfather had died and I finished out a school year. I was a teacher in Raleigh. I had finished out a school year at a preschool program and then just didn't look for another job and was like, I think I'm just going to decompress this summer, do theater. That brings me joy. Um, but this time, you know, I, I wasn't, I was, I was, I was experiencing a form of depression, mm. but it wasn't a devastating life thing. So, you know, and so I'm feeling like I'm actually feeling pretty good. Like I'm just, you know, doing what you're supposed to do, applying for five jobs a day. And like, you know, I'll just get a regular, you know, daytime job and do theater at night. And I don't know what happened, but um, no one ever called. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I know that part of it, you know, in hindsight is, you know, I'm a person with a master's degree, you know, People like to call it a fake master's degree because it's not an MBA or, you know, a master's of science, but it's master's degree. And I think many companies that secular companies that I call them, you know, know that a master's degree comes with a certain expectation of salary. Mm. And if you're applying for, you know, an office manager job, like they don't want to pay an office manager $40,000 a year, um, which, you know, is a little bit less than what I was making, you know, as a director of standardized patients here in Raleigh. Mm-hmm. So no one ever called and temp agencies even really weren't interested. And I suddenly felt very discarded, you know, whether that is self-inflicted or not. I just went, I've followed all the rules mm-hmm. that I'm supposed to follow as an American and as a member of this society. I've gone to college. And yeah, you could see, you could argue that, you know, an arts degree is not really useful, but we've, there's bundles of evidence that prove the contrary. So I know that, and I know that I'm employable in the non-theater workforce. So don't come at me with that. I realized that I was about to turn 34 and that I would only have one year left to have children. (laughs) And before it started being a thing. And that also, you know, in a year I would be 35 and I would no longer be a member of that core demo, that 18 to 34 demo that advertisers just want to make love to. Right. Basically, the short version of the story is a friend in Cincinnati who is also, who is a hardcore art maker, worker person, um, who's become a good treasured friend, said, hey, Cincinnati Fringe Festival is announcing their their fringe season for 2017 and they're having an announcement party. Hey, you want to come and make something, do something? Oh, and here's the date. And the date was April 25th, my 34th birthday. Oh, wow. So now it's all come into focus and I'm like, you're going to get a breakup letter from capitalism telling you that you are no longer useful to society <laughs> because you don't have a job and you are not married and you do not have children. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of that. So all of a sudden, like this focus came and, you know, they said, you know, it can be three to five minutes. So there wasn't like this pressure to make a whole 45 to an hour, you know, solo piece. Mm -hmm. And and again, like, you know, if if someone had asked me this, you know, five years ago, I I might have freaked the F out. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, he said, hey, and. And I was like, well, I don't have a job. I'm certainly not doing anything on my birthday. So sure, I'll do this thing. I think I have an idea. So I wrote a breakup letter as capitalism to myself, uh, lamenting my failure as as a member of this system. And mm. I you know, sent the script to David Henderson. David Henderson sent me back the voice memo. Thank God for iPhones, you know, with with the letter read. I said, I just want you to read it. 
as if it were like a student loan letter. (laughs) And he just gave me like the best reading of what this would sound like. That was, you know, that was last April. We're almost a year past that. And it really, it's just been like, you know, like when you have an idea and the monkey just will not leave and Mm -hmm. like, and it starts to infiltrate like the lens through which you see everything. And so over the, so the summer continues, I do a show which maybe isn't the pinnacle of musical theater, but I do a production of The Full Monty, the musical, which is all about these dudes who are getting laid off and um, and feeling really out of place because they don't have a job. And it's very much about the American male and this um, this expectation of masculinity and like supporting the family and how these men, you know, are left with nothing but to strip. Mm-hmm. And so that was really affecting me in a way. And I was just thinking again about like the strains of capitalism on regular everyday people. And then, you know, and then fall came and I suddenly had all these jobs. You know, I'd been applying. I'd been doing the things you're supposed to do when you're unemployed over the summer, meeting people and, you know, planting seeds and saying, yes, I'm looking for work. And and then I went from having one job, like working as a standardized patient occasionally, that's very, you know, sporadic work, to having four, five jobs lined up and still with five jobs, again, not barely being able to to make my bills. Mm-hmm. And and I turned to Christopher, my partner, and I said, this is a musical, first of all. And it's not a solo show because although, you know, the, the, the seed of it is from my point of view, everybody... Mm-hmm is getting beat down by this. It's not just me. Um, I mean, he is, you know, a 40-something architect, and he also is, you know, feeling the weight of this system. So I said, it can't just be me. This is, you know, I'd love to do a big musical, like with a lot of people, but if we're going to do this for a Fringe Festival, it should really be, you know, maybe three or four people. I definitely want a Black female at the center and a Black female that's not me. I would like to just direct this and mm-hmm. choreograph it. I would like to not be in it. And then this idea of vaudeville came to me. I love musical theater. I love talking about the history of musical theater. And and I think it's time, Tamara, for vaudeville to make a comeback. So <laughs> You heard it um, here first. <laughs> You heard it here first. I'm a trendsetter. (laughs) So I said, I think that this is a vaudeville musical. And I think it's going to, you know, and it's going to be very bare bones, you know, like old school, like with title cards Mm. for the chapters. And I think, again, going back to what we were talking about earlier about musical theater sort of being frothy, vaudeville was very subversive for the culture at the time. Yes, it, you know, it had its roots in minstrelsy and um, and, you know, and white men, you know, dressing in blackface and, you know, doing exaggerated portrayals of African-Americans. But as it progressed, it was very much attacking the very system that, you know, it seemed to exist within. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that's a great way to approach this subject that people get super prickly about. Because, gosh, just say the word capitalism, say something bad about it, and people call you a socialist and like, mm-hmm. you know. It gets like people get very passionate about socialism very fast and they'll say like Venezuela, look at Venezuela. And Mm. so so I thought vaudeville is this great way where you hear the phrase vaudeville and you automatically think comedy. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing that comes to mind. And so what if they come in thinking that this is just, you know, they're just going to tap dance a little and tell some jokes and maybe do some, you know, some physical bits. But it's actually about how this system is not working for the masses. And not necessarily that it's just the worst thing and that socialism is the way. Just Mm -hmm. here's a look at who this system is serving and then here are the majority of the people that it's not. Mm -hmm. That is the next thing. I am not a, you know, I sing, but I am not a musician by any stretch of the imagination. Imagination, but my boyfriend is a musician. He plays eight or nine instruments because he's a show off. So, <laughs> so he is writing. So very often, what the way will work is because you know it's a very that's a very new thing is making work with the person that you're in a relationship whom yeah. you also live with, and so there's a lot of interaction already. And so we're sort of tiptoeing into this new collaboration. So the way it's been working is, you know, I'll just. Um, I'll sing him, you know, a phrase. Like, I think that this is the beginning of a song. 
uh, and and he'll take it and and he's very good with finale, which is basically this computer program that you know will type out notes for you and let you add lyrics and that sort of thing. So, you know, that's what we've been doing. I had this idea that just came to me in in a dead sleep where I was like, there should be a trickle down ballet. And I went to him and I said, can you make me a song that's in waltz time that would have a a melody that was sort of like this trickle, trickle, trickle. And that's, I swear, that's all I said to him. And in an hour, he came back and had the whole phrase. And, um, and I, so then he plays me the phrase and I'm like, that's exactly what I was looking for. It's very interesting musically because you're sing you're singing trickle down, but the, the, the melody goes up. Ah which I think is brilliant Genius. and and that's him <laughs> and uh and so then I hear that phrase and I go oh I think I have a lyric for that phrase and so it was something about Reagan of course and so that phrase fit perfectly into the notes that he had selected and so that's sort of how we've been working and I've sort of put myself in charge of the book mm-hmm. uh which for those of you that don't know is all of the words that are spoken in the musical that are not sung. The working title for it is How I Got Screwed by Capitalism, the musical. But I mean, a shorter, more succinct version would just be hoops, man. Because I just feel like, you know, I have an MFA, but I don't have any college teaching experience. And so there's like another master's degree I could get that's just about academic pedagogy. But why do I need that? I teach high school seniors all the time. And if I'm pretty sure that they become college freshmen. So why am I getting another degree and taking another two years off my life for someone to teach me something I already know? I know how to make a syllabus. Mm -hmm. So, oh, you could teach high school theater, but oh, you don't have a teaching certificate. So now you have to go and do lateral entry and do a year of, of education in that, even though you work with high school students more than any other age group. And these are just my hoops. Everyone has hoops in whatever, even if it's not arts, in whatever industry you're in, there's always this, oh, but you really should get this certificate. I've heard that very often throughout Mm -hmm. my life, including the phrase, well, we don't want to set a precedent. If we let you, then that will, you know, we'll have to set a precedent. I'm like, why? Which is BS. Because if Broadway star A comes to Midwest town and wants to start teaching full-time in college, they'll let them do it. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm just, I, that's the thing is that I know that it's, that it's just roadblocks, that it's excuses. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, you know, and I just want to say, that's why I never see, I rarely see teachers of color at the academic level. I mean, I don't see them at any level, but I especially don't see them at the academic level because, you know, Hoops, man. I mean, that's really, I mean, sometimes I'm just like, I need to write a song called Hoops because that, that is for me when I started to, it's like the moment when the fish like notices the water. I was like, oh, this is the, this is the system that I'm existing in that I'm expected to meet expectations for. If you look at my CV, there's no reason that you don't, that, that you could assume that I would not be able to teach at the college level. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's sort of the other thing on my what's next is, you know, I've applied to at least 10, maybe 15 college teaching positions. And most of them, most of them say prior previous college teaching experience required, but some of them just say preferred. So I'm hoping that someone actually looks at my CV and says, oh yeah, like this girl's great. I mean, and it's not like, you know, I went to a program that accepts maybe 10, 15 people a year. Like Sarah Lawrence is pretty prestigious. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty prestigious school in its own right anyway. Um, I mean, Rahm Emanuel went there. Um, <laughs> but the pro, the theater program itself is pretty prestigious. And all of the fac- most of the faculty that I worked with are, you know, are artists in, in mainstream, you know, alternative theater. And I know a lot of people that, you know, that are also trying to figure out how to bypass these hoops because they've invested in their education and and they feel like they've invested enough. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where I'm at. Mm-hmm. Throughout our conversation today, we've talked a lot about how our identity is wrapped up in the work that we do in the jobs that we have, the jobs that we think we should have but we can't get. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can do a number on the way we think about ourselves as artists, as people, as 
individuals with value. Yeah. Yeah. How are you navigating this all now? Because you are freelancing, so you're pulling together lots of different jobs, and it sounds like you're doing a great job cobbling these together, that you have them coming at you. Mm -hmm. You're working in two different locations, which most people aren't used to doing, especially around here. Mm -hmm. So you have all of these things happening, and yet they're not necessarily stable. So mm-hmm. you don't know exactly how long they're going to last. There's a lot of uncertainty here, yes, even though I would consider you to be successful. Mm-hmm. You're not where you want to be. How are you managing the mental and emotional path that you have mm-hmm. to walk? Because I know you and I have talked a lot about self-care as artists and how how difficult that can be. So how is this all working for you? It is working well. I will say that I am super friggin' lucky that I have a large, and I do mean a very large, support system. And when I say support, I do not mean financial by any means. I just mean the relationships that I have made here. And it's really the reason I stay on Facebook is that the relationships that I made here sort of catapult me to to feel confident to to send 15 college applications to such and such you know I hear from Jeff Storer or whoever about how well that job would suit me and I know and so I have a little bit you know I have an outside voice that says no this is actually this is a a good, this is an option for you. This is not just a pipe dream. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a really supportive partner who is not in the arts Mm -hmm. uh, that I came by, you know, honestly, I didn't, you know, I wasn't like looking for someone that wasn't in the arts, but it's awesome to not, to, to be dating someone that, who, you know, but he's also a musician. He plays in a couple of contra dance bands. He knows the commitment necessary. I think that every artist has to find what their self-care looks like. And I don't know that mine would look like many others. Cause the way that I like theater is like church for me. Mm-hmm. I, I know that there are, I know some actors like they are good friends of mine that don't actually go to the theater. They, they are in shows, they participate, but they don't ever go to shows. Like if they're not in a show, they're not like, let me see what's playing. Right. Um, you know, I'm here for, you know, two weeks. I think I'm seeing four shows. I'm seeing Master Builder on Thursday. I'm seeing Miraculous and Mundane on Friday. There's a tap performance happening at ECU a couple of weekends away. So, like, the way that I take care of myself is that I go to see other theater. And I go and I take notes now because I'm now that person. So, um, but I go and I sort of journal or, you know, at least reflect about what it is I've seen and how it affected me and the tricks that I love that really worked and the tricks that I think maybe didn't work so well, but might have worked this way. And again, like I sort of problem solve and analyze what I saw. And so that is actually a part of my self-care. That is how I stay connected even when I'm not actively working is I just go to theater, which is not everybody's cup of tea. The other ways that I try to take care of myself I think it's what I was saying earlier is like, I really try to invest in relationships, whether they are theater based or not. I've, you know, I recently, you know, speaking of going to shows, uh, I guess a few months ago, it became obvious to me that, and I guess this is, you know, a reflection of that, that going to shows is not actually leisure for me. Like Mm -hmm. it's work, Mm -hmm. whether it's, I'm going to go and analyze and take notes or I'm going because so-and-so is going to be there and I need to network with them and reconnect and see if I can come and teach at their school. Mm-hmm. Uh, going to theater, and I'm this is not a complaint, it's just an awareness. Going to theater for me is now, is going to work. It's networking, which I'm not good at, but at least if I'm going to see a show, it doesn't feel like I'm just going to network. So much of our industry and other industries too, but especially ours, happens at the bar after the show. Yep. And I am not a drinker. Right. And I love to socialize. Everyone, anyone that knows me knows I'll talk to you forever, but I'm not a drinker. And I don't mind being around drinkers. I don't mind going to bars. Um, 
but it's definitely not my first choice of place to go. Mm-hmm. And but so many deals get made at bar. Just so much happens like so and so. Oh, you're doing that musical. How did that? Well, you know, I just was hanging out with so and so after that other yes. show that this company did and you know, and they, you know, and they mentioned that that was the next show. And I said, oh, I would love to do that show. And they were like, do you want to? Yeah. So, yeah, self-care for me looks like only going to events that I really want to go to. And I always want to go to theater. There's mm-hmm. never a time really where I'm like, oh, I'd rather stay home. But when it comes to social things that could be seen as business things, like really prioritizing myself sometimes over going and doing the networking thing and instead just sending the email and mm-hmm. saying, you know, I thought that I might see you at this party, but oh, I couldn't make it. But if you are interested in that choreography workshop, I am here and here are some dates that I'm available. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, remembering that art making is what I do. It is a part of my life, but I have to make the effort to make it not all I do. Um, One of my favorite things about coming back to Raleigh is that I always try to connect with the friends who most of them I did meet doing theater like at Meredith or in the community, but who actually don't do it for their living. You know, mm-hmm. they work at a law office or, you know, they work in the in a med office, you know, selling medical supplies. Uh, whenever, especially because I have like, this is my home. I have so many friends here. I always try to connect with the friends that are not doing the arts at all mm-hmm. um, because there's perspective to be had there. Um, and, you know, there's friendship to be had there. The people that don't frequent the arts are still very valuable friends and valuable influences in my life. And whenever I come here, it's nice to talk to people that, you know, they work from nine to five and then they go home and knit or they play with their ferrets or, you know, they spend time with their husband or their partner and they live a different life. They have a stable life. Yeah. You mentioned uncertainty and I think that is, it used to be the hardest thing for me to deal with. It was grad school that actually sort of changed my point of view that really, in essence, like even the people that think they have stability don't actually have stability. Mm -hmm. And they have the appearance of it. It's present for now. Mm -hmm. It is, it is, it could be temporary. Um, you know, ask the people that live in Puerto Rico, they probably thought they were living stable lives and now, you know, they don't have water. You know, my uncertainty is just a little bit more on the surface. It's Mm -hmm. just a little bit more visible, Mm -hmm. but life changes in an instant. And if anything, artists and people that work freelance are better equipped to deal with the instance that happen that just totally knock you on your behind. Mm-hmm. Stability is a myth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am not living a perfect life. Uh, there are some things that I wish I could change, but I know that I'm doing what I was born to do. I was born to work with kids and empower them to take control of their bodies and to live in them fully and presently I was born to sing and dance and perform on stage. I was born, I'm starting to realize, I was born to write musicals. Like that's what this, that's what my whole life has been leading up to. There is not a thing that hasn't happened in my life that has been sort of pointing me toward the place that I'm headed. Mm -hmm. And so if I have to feel a little bit uncomfortable, and I think that that's a good place to be, like, I think that's a problem a lot of Americans have is that like we just want to feel comfortable. And again, like comfortableness is a myth in a moment like nuclear war could rain down on us or or a hurricane could take over the whole country or, you know, the grid could disappear. Like if I have to feel a little bit uncomfortable just to like keep that edge, to keep that focus of what I need to do to be where I want to be. I think we underestimate our strength. We underestimate how much, you know, I hate that phrase, whatever kills you makes you stronger, Mm -hmm. but we underestimate, we underestimate our problem solving skills. Like that's what we were talking about at the beginning is life is nothing but problem solving at one after another. Like you solve one problem and here's a new one. And theater has prepared me in a way that I never would have thought possible for just solving the problems of life. I, you know, I feel like, you know, arts education is, gets a lot of flack, but is 
essential to forcing you to think outside the box and look at the problem. And here's my skill set. And here's my support. Here's my collaborative partners, whoever they are. And how do we solve this problem? Mm -hmm. Ask for help. All that stuff that we talk about all the time. I learned it all because I majored in theater. Thank you so much for being here, for sharing all of your wisdom, for being real with us. Mm -hmm. Artist Soapbox is a listener-supported podcast. To support the podcast, you can go to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash artist soapbox for notes on this episode with Lormerov and more. You can visit our website, www.artistsoapbox.org. Thank you, Lormerov. And we're out. <laughs> <laughs>